Father, as we seek to learn from you, we, we desire to sit at your feet and just take in what you have for us. I pray that it would be transformative. Lord, you've already transformed us. Those who have this gift of salvation, you brought us from darkness to light. You have brought us from death to life. There are no words that can express the thankfulness that we have. And we long for that day when our salvation will be brought to fulfillment. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to be good citizens of the kingdom. We thank you for your mercy when we are not. We thank you for your unmerited favor that you bless us in spite of who we are. So we acknowledge that you are, in fact, a good father. And your son, the Messiah, who is also good, Lord. We believe in him as our Lord and Savior. And we'd ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week we talked about the salt of the earth, how we are the salt of the earth and how Jesus is using this metaphor to describe how we are supposed to be in this life. And, of course, this comes on the heels of the Beatitudes. And he keeps on describing what the manifesto of the kingdom is or what the kingdom citizens are supposed to be like. And this salt, of course, we preserve society by the actions that we take and the way that we live. But we are also supposed to be flavorful, as I talked about last week. If you add just a little salt, you know, I've tried this experiment before. You, you know how you put uh, salt on apples and you taste them? It just makes them so much more tasty uh, when you do that. Have you ever tried it on watermelon? You, you put it on watermelon, too, and you go, wow, that, you'd never think that it would add to the flavor of the watermelon, but it does not too much. You can't put too much on there, but just... Just a little bit, and it really adds to the flavor. And that is what we are supposed to be like. We're supposed to, supposed to be adding flavor to this life just by who we are and what we do. And then it, we ended on verse 13, and we're going into the light of the world. So I want to pick it up in chapter 5 of verse 14. It reads there, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If you've ever traveled at night, now I've traveled, I've backpacked at night uh, in the high Sierras. We've taken a crew up to the top of Half Dome in Yosemite, and we came down, and it was pitch black going down the cables and we each had headlamps on. And the people across the valley, they could see us. And they would start signaling us when we were at the top of Half Dome. And we would do fun things with our lights. And we'd go back and forth. And we could tell right where they were. Even though there were no other lights in the area. The moon wasn't out or anything. And it was kind of overcast. It was just a dark night. And so that light gave away their position. It also gave away our position. Now that light, a city set on a hill, if you were a traveler back in the time of Christ, as in Uganda, when we were over in Uganda, we started out early in the morning at about 4, 4.30, and we started heading back towards Kampala, and it is pitch black. It is just as dark as can be out there, and we're driving down the road. I think I mentioned this to you. We saw people who were out there that were walking next to the road. And I, I have no idea how they could even see anything whatsoever. I think they were walking by Braille. You know, their feet would kind of determine where they were going. And then I saw another guy on a bicycle. He's on a bicycle, and it is just pitch black. And if you have a marker up ahead, like one light, you could, oh, there's, there's something up there because there's one single light that's up there. And so you just kind of get your bearings on that light because you couldn't see anything else, hardly even a silhouette that was out there. But a city set on a hill, if somebody was traveling on a road, especially back in the time of Christ, and they were to look down that road, and they saw up on the hill some fires burning, maybe the gates of the city, they had some fires there. And it was kind of a beacon where the person could keep their focus if there was no moon and the stars weren't out, it was just kind of dark. They could keep their eyes on that beacon, and it would lead them to the hill. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about, is a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And we are the light of the world, and if there are fires burning, and we are those fires, we have the light of God within us, we are the light of the world, people will see us as a bright spot. Now, it's worth mentioning that we are not always a bright spot, that we have several flaws. Uh, As I was going through this creation and evolution and young earth debate, there were some people that would come on the young earth creation, and they were just abrasive. I I didn't want to listen to them. I'm just going, oh, man, it's like fingers on a chalkboard, you know, going down. You're just kind of hurting my soul, me listening to you. And they're believers. They're brothers in the Lord. And so we want to make sure that we're a light, that we're salt, that we're flavorful, that we're giving direction to people who are out there. And I'm t- the more, the older I get, the more I see that people, they are just lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd and harassed and they need some help. They need some direction. And so that frame of reference at night for travelers is that city set on a hill that has the fires maybe at the gates burning or some lamps that are there, just like a lighthouse for a ship. If I've ever been out on the uh, water in the night, and we have, uh, Buzz and I have, we've been out there, and you go underneath the water, and I've described to you how dark it is in the ocean, going down to 60 feet. There, You cannot see anything. It is just darker than dark. It is blacker than black. But when you pop yourself up out of the water, out of the ocean, in the middle of the night, you see the shoreline. And you get your bearings, you go, okay, I know exactly where I am, which direction I'm pointing, where the boat is, because there's a light on the boat, and you can go to that boat. It's the same thing as headlights in a tunnel. Recently went through a tunnel, and there's no lights in the tunnel, and you turn your lights on, you can see exactly where you need to go and staying away from the edges, or the headlamp in a cave, if you've ever been in a cave where there's no lights, it, it provides for you discernment it gives you knowledge of what is in front of you so you don't stumble or fall and that is a metaphor for those who are in the world without christ they stumble and they fall easily they are going astray they don't even know what awaits them what kind of judgment awaits now light brings understanding in acts chapter 26 verse 17 it says i will rescue you from your own people and this is jesus talking to paul when he got him saved he says, I will rescue you from, your, or from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are, sac- are sanctified by faith in me. So it is our job to open up the eyes of people who were there. That's why Paul was being sent to the Gentiles and to turn them from darkness to light. If you start talking about the things of God, you'll always be surprised when you bring it up. Uh, Some people I work for, they know that I'm in ministry and I will listen to sermons or messages, uh, different kinds of messages. And I'll, I'll just do that all day long as I'm working for them out there being a gardener. And, I, you know, I, I just uh, do my thing. And sometimes they'll stop to me and stop and want to talk to me. And so I, I pull out my earbuds and I say, hey, what's going on? They go, what are you listening to? I said, well, I'm listening to a sermon. Oh, are you getting your sermons in, huh? I said, I am getting my sermons in. And this one particular guy just went on a rant about Christianity and what to avoid with Christians, you know, and if you give them this and, and oh, I'm going, oh, really? Yeah. So I'm just letting him run. And it's funny how people will just start to open up. If you just give them a little bit of room, they'll open up and they'll start talking about God. And you want them to do that. You want them to just start spilling it because it speaks of their heart and it, it just comes out in abundance if you give them time. And it's wonderful because then it can lead to witnessing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It kind of opens up their eyes. If they know you're a believer, please take the opportunity at some point, not being abrasive, not being like sandpaper, but just opening up. Maybe it's a comment like, I'll be praying for you. And there are people at church who will ask to pray for you as well. And they will all pray for you. 
And something like that can open the door, and that is being the light. But it's also how we live our lives. If we live our lives in the way Christ wants us to, we're going to be a light to those who are in darkness by default. This isn't something that Jesus is talking about here. Do your work so people see them and then give glory to God. That's true. It says that, but some people will take that. I got to go do work so people see it. It's just living your life in such a way where you follow Christ. You do works of benevolence. You help out people. You pray. You go to church. You do all of those things. And people look at that and they go, you're a Christian, aren't you? Uh, Yeah, I have confessed Christ. I want to follow him. And it'll open the door. And that's what Christ wants us to do is bring understanding to these people. And so we have to find an inroad for a conversation to take place. That means we have to open our mouths and be willing to do so. So that's number one. Light brings understanding. We are the light of the world. We have the understanding. We can give it to the people. Light also exposes wickedness and sin. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And so that's what the light does. Now, being the light, People will recognize you. They'll see you like a city set on a hill, like a lamp that is not under a bowl or a bushel. You'll be setting it out there. And when that happens, people, if they engage you in a conversation, they will find out that there are things which are wrong. And they have to decide if they're going to submit to God's law. Remember, that is part of repentance. Repentance is change of heart, change of mind, and change of action. The change of mind part is where you're willing to submit to what God says. And that is the life of a disciple. If you're going to be a disciple, you have to submit to what God thinks is right and not what you or I think is right. That's very difficult. That is the task of life uh, to do that. And so when you are the light, people will come. They'll want to talk to you. They see the light. They get some understanding. But as soon as you start talking about the sin... Maybe the talons come out, the sulfurous breath, the fangs start to elongate and they hiss a little bit, maybe loud, and they don't want to hear anything more about it. Now, this is common in the world. It takes place on a regular basis. And then you become what the Bible terms as anathema, or you were cursed, or don't talk to them very much. Uh, I have some family members, they'll say, watch out, he'll try to evangelize you. I will. I'll I'll try to, if I give my attention to somebody for long enough, eventually I'm going to tell them about Christ. I want them to go to heaven. I'm going to open up my mouth. And so that's wonderful if people are saying, don't, hey, he's going to try to evangelize you. Yes, I am. And would you like to accept Christ right now or would you like to wait a little while? You know, something like that is, is what we need to do. We need to be that witness out there, that light. But as we expose that sin, people are going to be offended. And it's not that... We ourselves, hopefully not, are pointing the finger going, you filthy sinner, repent, you know, something like that. Yeah, that's going to win a whole bunch of people, isn't it? You have to engage in a conversation. I'm not saying some aren't saved like that, but I think very few are, especially in our society. People, they consider themselves intellectual and they know a little bit more than you and they know a little bit more than everybody else around them and there's only a few people that are smarter and one of them, if there is a God, he's one of them. You know, that that type of thing, that mentality that they have. So they're going to be offended. Not only are people outside the church offended, people inside the church are offended as well. Uh, This can happen. I've mentioned to you before that when I speak the word of God, somebody in here is going to be offended. I cannot get around it. If you wanted to be a minister and somebody came to you and said, okay, it's going to be good and people are going to pat you on the back and they're going to say, oh, good things about you. It's going to be wonderful. But most of the time you're going to get nasty grams or most of the time people are going to disagree with you and they say, they're going to say, I don't agree with that. Well, it's not me, hopefully, that you're being disagreeable with. Hopefully you'd recognize it's God's word that somebody is being disagreeable with. And in the church, I I know somebody who's in a position of leadership. They have a friend that they've been discipling for many years, and they found out that their son is a homosexual, just came out as a homosexual, moved to another state, moved in with another man. And that was pretty much devastating for this particular person. But the comment that this person made who was being discipled was, 
Well, I, I, and I'm paraphrasing, I take joy in the fact that he's saved. You know, we talked about this in the men's group on uh, last Thursday. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Those are two places where there are lists that are not exhaustive. And those lists that are in there are specific sins like greed and homosexuality and murder and adultery. All of those things are listed. And it says, those who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, there's a predicate in there. And the predicate is, do not be deceived. And what that lends itself to is, there are those who are inside the church that will practice these things, as listed in 6, 9 of Corinthians and also Galatians five nineteen. But Galatians, it says, and the like, when it gets to the end of the list, So that means the list is not exhaustive. There are all kinds of things in that list that you could add to it. And there are people that believe in the church. They claim Christ and they say, I can do this and it's okay. God will forgive me. Those people are deceived. Those people are really never even saved. But they think that they're saved. And and that's a tremendous danger. And then when the light, whether in a message or in a Bible study, when the information comes out and this particular person was instructed that, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the person who lives like this is not saved. And the person took offense. And I don't know if the relationship completely ended or if there will be continued uh, fellowship in the future, but people in the church get offended by hearing these things because they want to hold on to them. You know, we're, we're told in Scripture that in the last days, people will heap unto themselves those teachers having itching ears. They want to hear particular things. My daughter went to a, a church who was visiting a church. I'm not going to mention which church it was because there are so many that are like this. Where they went, and it was more like a motivational speech. They read, my daughter said they read two or three verses and then said nothing about the Bible. It was all about motivation. Talked about Tiger Woods. And, and it's a big church. And you're thinking, I just want to make one thing clear. If you come here, you're going to hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified. I am not here, although I want you to feel good. That's not my job. My job is to bring the word of God that proclaim we are sinners. I'm not here to build up your self-esteem. That is the psychology of the world. You are good only because you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, what's the opposite of good? Bad sheep. You're, You're bad. We are all bad, and I know that that is just devastating to some, but that's what the word declares. So you will get Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why was he crucified? Because we're bad, we're sinners, we are in need of redemption, and we get the grace of God, and that's where any worth that we maintain comes from, and no worth comes from us ourselves. And Christ tells us that we are as, our works are as filthy rags in the book of Isaiah, that nothing that we do can even change that in God's mind. So that's what you're going to get here. Now, if you want me to give you a, a seminar on how to conduct yourself in business, I think you're going to have to go somewhere else. I'm not going to give you that. I'm only going to give you what's in the word. Hopefully, most of the time, I, I get it correct. And if I don't get it correct, please talk to me. I, I want to correct. I want to make sure it's right. But he's the only one that matters. And it's us being crucified with Christ. That means we have to die. Isn't that a wonderful message? You came here today because you wanted to die, didn't you? And the world will say, what are you talking about? I don't feel good about this at all. I'm leaving and going somewhere where they make me feel better. It's not about feeling better. It's about knowing Christ. And so we are the light that exposes wickedness and sin, but also we're the light that shows the world God's grace. If the world sees us, those who can be redeemed, there's one Calvary Chapel pastor. He was a felon. I I don't know what he was thrown in for. I think it was uh, 
drug sales. I think he was a part of a gang or something. And now he has a thriving church and God gave him this huge warehouse. And now he is the chaplain of the police department in the city that he ministered to, ministers to. And the cops look at him like, <laughs> a felon is our chaplain. And he has a uniform and everything with his tattoos, you know. He's got it all. The Lord transformed him, and that is the grace of God which speaks what he can do for all of us. No matter how bad we are, God can transform us, and he can make us those new individuals, those new creatures. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so that's where we stand. That's what we have our hope in is Jesus and this fact that we have his grace that comes to us. And so we are the light. We bring the grace, we bring the knowledge, we bring the understanding, but this brings to us persecution because the world doesn't like to hear this. Uh, In the news media, which is out there, the things that I hold to, I am called a fundamentalist, radical, extreme Christian. And I am to be shunned because of my views, because I am pro-life because I am quote-unquote conservative in my political views because I am conservative in my theological views because I believe there is a right and a wrong and I think most of you may be like that as well and and why am I like that only because of Christ I wasn't like this all the time and neither were you you weren't like this all the time you have been transformed and so we're all in the same boat together those of us who have gotten saved and we're not perfect, and we're, we know that we're not perfect. You're not allowed in here if you're perfect. You heard that? Well, I don't like to say that because then Jesus isn't allowed because he, he's the one that's perfect. But this idea that we are broken and God just gives us his grace, we're supposed to be carriers of that grace. We give grace to people when they don't deserve it. Do you like blessing somebody when they don't deserve it, especially when they've harmed you? If they've done something wrong to you, do you turn around and just bless them? Oh, I'm sorry, you thought you had to do that to me. Here's 50 bucks that people would think you're crazy, you know, doing something like that. But that's what God does for us. So this light, it brings us understanding. It exposes wickedness and sin. The light shows the world God's grace. And the bottom line of this is it will bring God glory for others or to all if they see us living our lives for God. And also we are to demonstrate to the world what it is to follow Christ. That is the light If we are not doing that, if we are not applying ourselves to it, if we are not giving our time and our resources and our efforts to following Christ, the world will not see. Then they will not have the witness. And we will not be used to get them saved. I think God has called each person who is going to be saved to be saved, but he uses us to do it. And each one of us can get the blessing of being used in that capacity. If we choose not to do it, well, somebody else gets the blessing. And when you get to heaven, you go, okay, where's my reward? And you have this little teacup that's up there, and there's a couple of gold nuggets in the bottom where you could have this mountain of blessing when you get up there. And that's our motivation. That's why we do what we do. So the bottom line is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And as I said before, I'm going to give you this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And so there's a great multitude of teachers that are out there with a great multitude of people, and they're going in the wrong direction. Now, it goes on here in verse 17 talks about Jesus fulfilling the law. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what is going on here? I I need to give you some context. If you guys remember, I talked about the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5, but I also made reference to Luke chapter 6. 
In Luke chapter 6, it gives the Beatitudes there, but in Luke chapter 5, it gives the context for what's going on before this. The Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount, which is on the plain in the northwest territory, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. But then you have the Gospel of Luke, it calls it the Sermon on the Plain. So what happened was Jesus went up in this hill, found a level spot, and he sat down, or he, yeah, he sat down there and he began to teach his disciples as they came to him. There were tens of thousands of people. And it was like a, a, it looks like in that area, it's a natural amphitheater. So whatever Jesus said could be carried out. I, I think it was George Whitfield who was um, watched by Benjamin Franklin in a particular area of the town that they were in. And he said he estimates up to 30,000 people could hear George Whitfield the way that the town was set up. And there were no microphones or speakers back at that time. So it is possible to minister to tens of thousands of people and they will be able to hear if the acoustics are right. And so Jesus, he's, he's teaching there, but in the background, you have people from the Decapolis, you have people from Tiberias, you have people from all the way around the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee and beyond, maybe even up into Syria. And everyone who came to Jesus, he healed them, every single one that came to him. Now, how tired would Jesus be at the end of the day? He would be completely exhausted, utterly spent. But he sits down, he starts talking to all these people, the disciples are right in front of him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the zealots, all of them are there as well. And there were groups of people, political parties, if you will, that were back in the days of Jesus. I'm going to give you these guys. First, you had the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the zealots. Now, if you had to pick a group of which to belong, which one of those would you pick? You know, Simon, the disciple of Jesus, was a zealot. Now, when you hear zealot, you think radical, fundamentalist, believes in right and wrong. Now, these zealots, what they wanted to do is they wanted to forcibly take back all of Israel from the Romans. They had several times where they rose up and they tried to take out the Romans, and of course they utterly failed. It wasn't supposed to be the case. Some were not so radical as others. Some have called the zealots the uh, ancient terrorists because they would go in and they would attack the Romans and they would do it uh, in a way that maybe undercover, that type of thing. They didn't want to get killed all the time. And, and so they would wreak havoc with the Romans. And so these were the zealots. And one of those zealots became Simon the Zealot, the disciple of Jesus. And so you had that group. Then you also, you had the Herodians, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the separated ones. They were known for their emphasis on this uh, personal piety that they were doing everything that was required of them. I've mentioned to you before, if you go to Israel, you will see certain practices that they uh, conduct themselves in. Those who are set apart, they're not Pharisees today. They're just maybe the Hasidic Jews or they, they have these funny outfits on the Sabbath. You just look up some of these outfits and they have little balls on their little slippers on their feet and they have this fur thing that goes all the way around their head and they have their white stockings and you, you go, what is that? And, and some of them have the curls on the side of their head and the black trench coats and the black hats. And it, it's just kind of different. It's certainly not our culture here. If you go by some of the synagogues around here, you will see some people dressed up like that on the Sabbath who are Jews. But you had the Pharisees, they considered themselves set apart. And they wanted to make sure that everyone who wanted to follow God was zealous in doing so and kept all 600 commands that were in Scripture. All 600. And if you broke one of them, you're in big trouble. And they would be the judges of that. So they're watching Jesus, everything that Jesus is doing. And of course, he's healing on the Sabbath. And oh, you can't do that because in the book of Exodus, it says that if you break the Sabbath, you must be put to death. Did you guys know that? It says that in the Old Testament, at least in two places. And so they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Why are they upset at Jesus? Well, he's so popular. I mean, you have tens of thousands of people and somebody comes into your territory and 
are you? And you're teaching people that you can heal on the Sabbath. Well, that doesn't go with what we like. And so you're ruffling our feathers here and they get a little upset. And we'll find out that in one of the Gospels here, the Herodians got with the Pharisees to determine how they could kill Jesus. And well, who are the Herodians? The Herodians were people that wanted Herod in power. They were willing to acquiesce to that. They were willing to be submissive to Rome. And the zealots would have hated them. They just would have hated these two groups. And the Pharisees too. But then the Pharisees got together because they had this political alliance. They said, hey, we got to get rid of this guy. Look what he's doing. He's taking out our, our space here. We get no respect. You know? and, and so they, they start going down that line. And then you had the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? They were the high priest. They were the wealthy ones. They were the the ones they took their income from what came in through the temple and so they were in the flowing robes they had all the power they had all the authority they ran the Sanhedrin which was the supreme court the supreme court was stacked in Israel and so they would often refer to the Pharisees who also had a part in the Sanhedrin but they were not the majority ruling party so to speak but they had their own interest in mind. They were pretty much self-sufficient. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife or angels that were there. And that's where they tried to trip up Jesus. We'll get to it in Matthew chapter 22, where the Sadducees, they said to themselves, okay, we're going to get Jesus. This is it. We got a question for him. We'll see how he answers this one. In the Old Testament, if you were a guy and, and you married a woman and you had several brothers and you died, it was incumbent, it was necessary that the next brother in line take your wife and marry her and raise up children for you who has died. If you want to know a case of this, Onan in the Old Testament, you can look him up. And so, and, and he was judged, by the way, he was killed for not doing that, raising up children for their brother. And so they thought, okay, we'll ask him this question because we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe in the afterlife and all of that. So we got a question for him. And they posed the question in Matthew chapter 22. It's also in the Gospel of Luke. But in Matthew 22, they came to him saying, suppose this man marries this woman and he dies and he has no children. So she marries the second brother and the same thing happens and goes through all these brothers and none of them have children. In the resurrection, who will she be married to? And they thought, we got him now. And Jesus says, you err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. There is neither marrying nor given in marriage in heaven. And Luke makes it even more clear that we are not married in heaven except to one person. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And that's in the book of Matthew. Or excuse me, not the book of Matthew. That is in Ephesians chapter 5. And it talks about husbands and wives. And at the end he goes, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So if we're married to somebody else in heaven and we're also married to Christ, what is that? That's bigamy. Bigamy is a sin. Christ, our God, told David and Solomon, do not multiply wives. Do not do it. And, of course, they did it because that's what the culture did back then. One wife is enough for any man. No man needs more than one wife. And so th this idea that they thought they would trip him up because of their, their beliefs, and he snuffed them. I mean, he just, like, put the thumb there and said, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. And so they were all about themselves, all about power, all about self-interest. The Pharisees, the same way you do it, the way we say you should do it, and you should follow these 600 commands. And they had every jot and tittle down. And you go to Israel now, and they have little buckets there, and you have to wash your hands a certain way. And at the prayer time in the afternoon, the Hasidic Jews all huddle around because they don't want the Gentiles who are going to the Western Wall to touch them because then they'll come unclean and then they won't be able to honor God with their prayers. And there's so many problems. They have to eat the right things. They can't walk too far on the Sabbath. They can't turn on lights on the Sabbath. They can't look at themselves in a mirror unless they see something wrong and they have to do some work to fix it. I mean, it just is it's wrong, these people. And Jesus condemned all of these groups. So we have the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then you had the scribes. They were experts in the law. They were the ones that made the copies, and that's why we have such good translations today or good uh, text man manuscripts from times of old because they were dedicated to copying these things and there were certain requirements for these copyists that they had to take a bath they had to be fully dressed the king couldn't interrupt them they had to use a line they had to count the each line and each letter that was on the line and the spaces between the words they had to do all of that and it was very necessary for us to continue to have the word of god especially in the old testament today 
It's because of people like that. But they would come around and just examine if something was right and wrong. They would be the experts. They would be the lawyers that you would go to. If you wanted to know something about the law in today's, if you want to know something about the law, you go to an attorney. Well, these guys were like the attorney. They would look up something or they would know something and they would give it to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin would say, well, so says these scribes and this is what the word of God says, so so shall it stand. And they'd make these decrees. And so all of these groups together did not like Jesus. He's moving in on, his, on the territory. And so they are all there. They're listening to who this guy is. The zealots are probably listening and going, is he going to overthrow Rome? What's he going to do? If he does that, I'm behind him. But, uh, you know, if he doesn't do that, I don't know if I'm going to be behind him. The Pharisees are just, boy, they just... They had their hairs in a knot is what happened with them. And so they were just all upset. They were completely upset at Jesus being there. And he comes along and they, they accuse him of not fulfilling the law. And Jesus says, oh, no, I have fulfilled the law. And there's not one jot or tittle that is in the uh, King James Version that will pass away in a jot or a tittle would be the little vowel marks on the Hebrew language that they would put in there. And he says, not one little vowel mark will be removed from the law until all of these things are going to be fulfilled. And, and so they accuse Jesus of violating the law, number one, because they re- he repeatedly broke the Sabbath by healing people. And that would constitute work in the eyes of the Pharisees. And Mark chapter 3, verse 1 says, Another time he went into a synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, because they didn't like him. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Now, I, I like the way Jesus is doing this. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. He knows that if he heals on the Sabbath, they're going to be upset. He goes, Watch this. And he puts this guy up here. Then Jesus asked him, he asked these Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill? And they wouldn't answer him. Why? Because they knew they'd get trapped. They knew that they would be rebuked right there. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I've just had enough of him. And they, they, I, I'm sure they stormed out of that synagogue. It just were fit to be tied because he did it in their face. You know, just like, come on. You want to take me on? Go ahead. No, Jesus didn't quite do it like that, but that's my version of it. You know, the Bill International version. I, when, I, when I see Jesus and the way that he stands up to these people that were just stubborn in their own hearts, and God will not stand for that. He, he loves humility, a broken and contrite heart. He does not despise that, but pride and arrogance... And self-motivation out there, he just despises. And that's why he didn't just put one finger in the eye. He put both hands in the eye by having this guy stand up. He goes, pull out your hand. Go ahead. Do you see this? Are you watching? And he heals that guy right in front. The guy's just elated, rejoicing, I'm sure, and just praising God. And these guys, like I said, fit to be tied, went out from there and wanted to see how they could take care of Jesus and get rid of him. So they sought to kill him. And again, they sought to kill him, not so much for the miracles, because they couldn't deny the miracles. But remember uh, Lazarus? Remember how Jesus healed Lazarus? I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find it. I was hoping I would find that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead on the Sabbath. I was just it's got to be there, you know, some dates working out and I just couldn't find it and I ran out of time and I, well, I, I guess that wasn't the case. But I, I'll bet if he did that on the Sabbath, that would have just been the end of everything because as it was, Lazarus, they decided they had to kill Lazarus too because he's evidence 
He raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're just, their hair is on fire. You know, they're pulling it out and screaming maniacally. And they're just going, what are we going to do with this guy? Everybody's going to follow after him. We can't have that. We're the ones in power. We hold this place in Jerusalem. We have the high priest and we have the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they were all in cahoots to take out Jesus. And I love that he healed Lazarus and then Lazarus, he... Put out a hit on Lazarus. You know, that's what they... How do you say that in Italian? You know, something like that. You, you take them into the, the synagogue in there or the temple. Then we've got to offer for you. You know, and they wanted to kill Lazarus. Poor guy. I didn't do anything. I was just laying there dead. And all some I'm alive. And they wanted to kill him because of that. Because it spoke of who Jesus was. Now, the same thing is going to happen to us when we get the new life. People are going to look at us and say, I need to take you out, you fundamentalist, radical Christians, extremists. What is wrong with you guys? Keep your religion out of the political realm. What's your morality? There is no moral majority. Really? So which moral majority do we want in there? Do we want the world's moral majority? Or do we want God's moral majority? And so we're to walk in the newness of life, light of the world, the salt of the earth. Those types of things are to be how we act and how we are to be in this society. So... There were things, as I mentioned, that uh, you, you can be put to death for in the Old Testament, specifically the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 14, it says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does not work or whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. So the Pharisees were trying to say that heal to heal somebody on the Sabbath constituted work. And therefore, that individual was worthy of death. Exodus 35, it says also in verse 2, For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it must be put to death. So again, the Pharisees were thinking, that's work. You're not allowed to perform a miracle on the Sabbath, to do good on the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus completely disagreed with that. And we know that Jesus was crucified, again, not because of the miracles, because how unpopular would that be? Tens of thousands get people, of people get healed, completely restored. I mean, limbs coming out and people walking that couldn't walk before, people being raised from the dead. The populace would just be screaming like, yes, we have this prophet among us. Who this guy, Hosanna in the highest. That's why they're praising him as he came into Jerusalem. That's what was going on there. And, and when the Pharisees saw this, they had to come up with some idea how they're going to kill him. They couldn't kill him because he did the miracles. And, of course, we know that Scripture says when Jesus confronts them on the miracles, that Jesus said to them in John chapter 10, verse 32, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Verse 33 says, We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And he did. You know, some people say, Well, Jesus never said he was God. He didn't show up and say, Hey, I'm God. I'm, I'm here. Hey, over here. He didn't do that. that that's the epitome of humility, Right? But what if he did that? That would be the epitome of pride. Like, yeah, you know, it's right here. It, that's not a characteristic of God. He's a humble. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's not going to stand up and proclaim who he is, but he is going to do the works that the Father sent him to do. And because of that, he's the light of the world. He's the salt of the earth. People see him. They get convicted of their sin, and they either want to join him or they want to kill him. And so that's, again, we fall into that same category. Jesus is the light of the world, and he calls us the light of the world. We are just like him in this respect. And so remember, the Jews were standing around there listening to Jesus teach. Jesus is not only instructing the disciples, but he's also directing his wrath towards those on the Sermon on the Mount. And as he tells them that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of those, how do you think that would have gone over? How, how do you think that they would have received that sitting there and listening? Especially, just say there were a thousand people there, 
and you had 20 Pharisees. And the 20 Pharisees would have been all gathered together or maybe in a couple of groups just standing there listening to Jesus, what he had to say. And they're talking to themselves back and forth. And the populace, the common people, are listening to Jesus and they're just dumbfounded on what he has. Their mouths are probably... They're just listening. They're captivated by him. And then when he says, unless your righteousness supersedes or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what do you think the populace did at that time? They they were talking to looking at Jesus going like this. And then, oh, and then they look over at the Pharisees and then the Pharisees would have been humiliated right there. And you probably could have seen it just... If they would have had sunglasses, they would have put them on. You know, just, I've got to hide from this guy. What does he think he's doing talking to us like that? And that's when the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they, they were all getting together just to plot the death of Jesus. I love the way he handles this. So he goes on, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said, To the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now again, the context. Somebody who's rich and powerful in the midst of those who are commoners, who have the power to kill you, surreptitiously, you know, behind the scenes, get Guido, you know, that type of thing. Do you think that they're occasionally going to come up and say, you fool? I'll bet that was happening. And I bet those Pharisees were hearing Jesus say this. Let me say it again. Let me read it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Where would that teaching come from? That would come from the Pharisees. And the scribes. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now I have four minutes here. In the King James Version, verse 22, it says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without a cause. That is not in the NIV, it's not in the NAS, it's not in the modern translations. It is in the older translations that come from the Texas Receptus. In the men's group, we've been talking about which Bible versions and why we have the versions and what about the King James, what about the NIV, what about the NAS. And it appears that this was added without a cause. If you're angry at your brother without a cause, you have to have a cause to be angry, then it's okay. Is that what it's saying here? And you have to judge that by the rest of Scripture. But Jesus points out three things here. He says, if you're angry at your brother, and I'll probably expand a little bit more on that next week, but this idea of being angry at your brother, if you read the rest of Scripture, which we will get to, it just says things like, the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And Scripture also says, be angry and sin not. Well, what does that mean? We can be angry but not get involved in sin when we get angry. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I just get angry. Do you guys get angry? Am I alone in that? You get a little upset, you know, driving. (laughs) Just certain things bring it out in me. I, I don't know what it is. And I have to fight my flesh. And it says if you don't fight that, You give Satan a foothold. And then he prompts you to do something. And that's when you get in trouble. That's when you blow your witness. Man, that's where we need the grace of God, right? But then he says, if you call anybody Raka, like Raka, Rock out? No, he's not talking Rock out. What Raka means is empty one. But it probably meant empty-headed or foolish. Now, what are synonyms to that? Do you guys remember the old Warner Brothers cartoons? 
And in one of those, there was a phrase, Idjit Galut. You guys remember that? No? You don't remember Idjit Galut? Well, it means something like blockhead, clawed, dolt, fool, imbecile, jerk, lummox, ninny, nitwit, simpleton, dunce, stupid, all of the above. That's what it means. So if you go to somebody and you say, you ignoramus, nitwit, you know, something like that. God says, you're in danger of judgment. Have you ever called somebody stupid? I know that when I was younger, I'd go, you stupid idiot. What are you, you know, it just comes out like, oh, you're so stupid. What are you being so stupid for? And you just kind of run off at the mouth. And God says, if you're doing that, you're in danger of judgment. Or if you say, you fool to somebody. You stupid idiot, galoot, you know, whatever you want to say. God says, you better not be doing that. Even if you don't have a cause. If you have a cause, you shouldn't be doing that type of thing. Now, I'll expand on this more next week. But Jesus, I love the way that he just packs this in here. And what we're going to be talking about next week, I'll finish this one up. But we're going to be talking about reconciliation. There's this idea what the world considers reconciliation and what the Bible talks about reconciliation, which we know as forgiveness. And it's in Matthew chapter 5. It's also in Matthew chapter 18. So I'm going to be going through that as well. If you can, read ahead. See what's in there. Explore the idea of forgiveness, biblically speaking. And, and make sure that when you leave this place and you go through these doors, you are conscious of being the light and the salt for those who are out there who are perishing and also being a witness to each other. But God wants us to be flavorful, to show the world the grace of God and just know when that comes, if, you, if you're doing it right, you will receive some persecution, you will receive some blowback, but God still asks us to be that salt and that light. That's my prayer for you, that you can go from here and you can just say, I'm going to live for Christ no matter the cost, because great is our reward in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And, and Jesus, how you conducted yourself here, you didn't put up with the pride and the arrogance. And Father, we'd ask that you would not put up with that in us as well. Convict us of that and restore us, humble us, but renew us. We know that you are able to and and we rejoice in the fact that you care for us enough, enough just like children to take care of us and to watch out for us, to guide us, to discipline and to bless us. And we'll trust in you to do this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.